welcome to the Making Sense of Life podcast. My name's Garth Oliver, and I'm your host as we continue our journey through the pages of Scripture, tracking the story that unfolds there. In today's episode, we're going to overview the first half of the book of Jeremiah, actually a little bit more than that, but roughly uh, the first half, with a particular focus on the 70 weeks of captivity that he prophesied for the exiles of Judah. Now, a couple of notes here on the front end. One is that the translation that I'll be operating from is the New American Standard 95. And if I use a different translation, I'll let you know that. And then secondly, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you're familiar with the review that I do at the beginning of each podcast that, oh, for a long time took us to about 13, 14 minute mark in the episode. As we've gotten deeper into the story, that's got a bit longer, and particularly as we spent a good deal of time in Isaiah. But now that we're complete with Isaiah, we finished Isaiah, I've gone back and I've really tried to summarize the message of the prophets, particularly Isaiah. And and so I think that's a little bit more condensed. And so uh, if uh, that's cumbersome, that review is cumbersome for you, uh, still I'd encourage you to come in around the 13 or 14 minute mark. I'm not exactly sure uh, where the transition occurs from the older material, but somewhere around the 13 or 14 minute mark is probably a good place to come in and then you can adjust forward or backward from there if you need to. And in future episodes, I can tell you uh, better about where to, to hit that. Um, and so again, if this review is burdensome to you, I'll, I'll meet you there sometime somewhere around 14 minutes. And if not, then uh, uh, let's begin to review the key developments in the story and how they move the story forward. And so we begin with Adam and Eve, who were created and commissioned to rule as God's representatives. They enjoyed a fully functional relationship with him that included all the blessings that he provided to them as his representatives. But in spite of all these blessings, the serpent was able to stir up discontentment in them. He convinced the woman to pursue her own ideas of good and evil, independent of God. This was not only an explicit rejection of God's rule, it was also a rejection of her unique role in this creation. Now, this is where the man should have stepped in and led, and through that leadership, subdued the serpent and protected the woman. But he didn't do that. He relinquished leadership to her, following her as she followed the serpent. So the man fails in his first opportunity to rule and subdue as God's representative. And although man has never lived up to this created purpose, it remains as God's express purpose for him. And whether or not man will ever fulfill this purpose remains the driving question of the story. Now, in this failure, he brought a curse upon the ground that he was supposed to care for and protect. He'd been formed from it, and now he's doomed to return to it. Instead of the bounty that it had produced for him in the garden, It's now going to yield thorns and thistles. This is his new reality under the curse. But fortunately, Yahweh wasn't content to leave him there, and he's been acting ever since to restore mankind to what he created him for. He wants man to enjoy the blessing that goes with living in alignment with him, rather than having to live under the curse. He started this restoration in the garden. In Genesis 3.15, he promised the woman that one of her seed would ultimately rule and crush the head of the enemy. And in the following verse, he says that the woman will desire this man, and he must rule over her. Now, at the time, this statement seems somewhat unclear, but the development of this promise is one of the main thrusts that drives the story forward. And as the story moves forward, man was persistent in his commitment to live independent of God, pursuing life on his own terms right up through Noah's day. Noah's the rare exception. He was the lone seed of the woman, the one who had chosen to align himself with God in submission to him. And this wholesale determination by everyone else to live life on their own terms produced an earth that was filled with violence. 
In response to this persistent defiance, Yahweh sends judgment, wiping out mankind in the flood. Only Noah and his seed are preserved in the, in the ark, and upon their exit from the ark, Yahweh makes a covenant with them, and it's the covenant of the rainbow. And in this covenant, he promises to never again destroy mankind with the flood. Now, this is a major development in that it formalizes Yahweh's determination to respond to man with mercy. He knows that the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and if he doesn't act in mercy, man's never going to survive. Now, in connection with the covenant of the rainbow, Yahweh recommissions Noah and his sons. And this commission echoes back to the original commission of Adam with some significant additions. And first he tells them to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, which is essentially almost word for word what he told Adam. But dominion over the animals is stated a bit differently. Yahweh says that he has given all the creatures into the hand of Noah and his sons, meaning that he has given Noah and his sons authority over the animals. So while it's stated differently, that part is essentially the same. But it's in connection to this dominion that one of those additions appears. See, not only is man to rule over the creatures, but every living thing is given to him for food, just as Yahweh had previously given him the green plants for food. The only restriction is that he's not to eat the blood of the animal because that's tied to his life. To eat its blood would be to eat its life, and this is forbidden. Now, this notion that the blood of animals is set apart or sacred leads to another new element that's even more significant, and that is that any man or animal who spills the lifeblood of a man is to forfeit his own lifeblood at the hands of man. The stated reason for this is because man was created in the image of God. To kill a man is to kill one who was created to represent God. But the placement of this and the development of the story reveals something else. Yahweh didn't randomly throw in the death penalty for murder. He establishes this law because of the situation that brought about the flood. The earth was filled with violence, and I think that means that murder was rampant. And so now, with the fresh start after the flood, that act carries the death penalty. However, in spite of the fresh start, by the time we get to Babel, somewhere between 100 and 300 years later, man's again united in his defiance of God's commission and purpose for him. Yahweh responds to this defiance by confusing his languages and dividing him into nations, which he gives over to the dominion of Satan and the demons who followed him in rebellion against Yahweh. The best that the people of these nations, who come to be known as the Gentiles, the best that they can hope for is a life lived under the curse. But that doesn't mean that Yahweh is giving up on his determination to bring blessing to all these nations. He chooses a man named Abraham and offers him a promise in the form of a covenant. This is the Abrahamic covenant, and we summarize this with three main points. The first is that Abraham's seed, his descendants, will become a new nation distinct from all the nations that were created at Babel. And this nation will exist in relationship with God. This is a restoration of the relationship that Yahweh had originally created man for. And then secondly, this nation will possess the land promised to Abraham by Yahweh. And then finally, thirdly, they'll hold a special status as the promise holder of blessing. In other words, it's going to be through Abraham's seed that God is going to bring the promised blessing that the Gentiles as a whole have universally rejected throughout the story. Now, this covenant is an extension of the promise made to the woman in the garden, and it provides the framework through what, which Yahweh will work out his purpose of restoring man to what he created him to be and enable man to enjoy the blessing Yahweh offers him. As the story unfolds, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, who is renamed Israel, has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. Because of a famine, they go down to Egypt where they are enslaved and grow into a people that's at least 2 million strong. 
Then, after 400 years, Yahweh raises up Moses, who brings them out of Egypt to Mount Sinai, where Yahweh enters into the Mosaic Covenant with them, establishing the relationship that was part of his promise to Abraham. Yahweh is now living among his people, the nation of Israel, in a functional relationship. And it's important to understand how this covenant relates to the Abrahamic covenant. So the Mosaic covenant is subordinate to the Abrahamic covenant in that it comes after it, and it doesn't invalidate or replace it, but rather supplements it, right? And secondly, it's supplemental in that it provides the means through which Abraham's seed will enjoy the relationship that was promised in the Abrahamic covenant. Now, under this Mosaic covenant, Yahweh requires the people of Israel to be completely devoted to him with all their hearts, spelling out in great detail what that devotion is going to look like. If they'll do this, he will bless them as a nation in the land he has promised them. Specifically, this means that they will be chief among all the nations and will experience abundant fertility, both in their crops and herds and in their own offspring. And in this, they'll manifest to the other nations the glory of living under Yahweh's blessing. And it's here that we recognize another distinction between the Mosaic and Abrahamic covenants. And that is that the Mosaic covenant was conditional. Israel would experience either blessing or cursing, depending on whether they obeyed or not. By contrast, the Abrahamic covenant is unconditional. Having established the covenant with Abraham, Yahweh will make Israel into a nation through whom he brings blessing to all the Gentile nations. Now, before they get into the land, Moses is replaced by Joshua, who actually leads them in to begin to take possession of the land. However, once they get there, they repeatedly fail to live up to their covenant responsibilities and their relationship with Yahweh. Every man's doing what's right in his own eyes. In other words, they're still living under the deception of the serpent that started all the way back in the garden. In the book of Judges, we're introduced to the solution. They're going to need a king, someone who, through his leadership, will turn their hearts toward Yahweh. Now, as we follow the story, Israel had come to something of a similar conclusion, at least in the fact that they wanted a king. The problem is the king they want is a king like all the other nations have. And so God gives them that first to show them the folly of this desire. He gives them a man named Saul, but because Saul is independent and self-willed, in other words, he's doing what's right in his own eyes, Yahweh doesn't allow him to retain the throne and ultimately kills him, replacing him with David. David is the king that they need. He's a man after God's own heart who was able to turn Israel's heart back toward Yahweh so that they're no longer doing what's right in their own eyes. As a result of David's faithfulness in shepherding Israel, Yahweh makes a covenant with him, which of course is the Davidic covenant. And this is an extension of the Abrahamic covenant, providing important details about the seed of the woman all the way back at the beginning who will come and rule. And so we summarize this with four points. First, Yahweh is going to make David's name great. Secondly, Yahweh will establish Israel in the land so that they dwell securely there. In other words, their nation will never be overthrown. And then this ties in with the third element of the promise, which is that Yahweh will establish a dynasty in which David's seed will rule over this securely established kingdom. In other words, the house of David is going to be an eternal dynasty there in the promised land. And then fourthly, David's seed will build a house for Yahweh's name. Now, David is succeeded on the throne of Israel by Solomon, his immediate seed, who begins to fulfill elements of the Davidic covenant. However, after starting strong, Solomon doesn't finish very well. Rather than loving God, Solomon loves women, and these women turn his heart away from Yahweh to worship the gods of the surrounding nations from which they came. So, in keeping with the terms of the Davidic covenant, Yahweh disciplines the house of David, which results in a divided kingdom. 
The line of David continues to rule over Judah and Benjamin and make up the southern kingdom known as the kingdom of Judah. The other ten tribes who rebelled against the house of David formed the northern kingdom. And from this point all the way up until the exile, this is what's called the kingdom of Israel. As we track the story through the divided kingdom, we find that all of the kings of the northern kingdom are evil, leading Israel away from Yahweh, worshiping golden calves as the God who brought them out of Egypt. Their persistent refusal to worship Yahweh brought upon them the full force of the curses promised in Deuteronomy. Specifically, what this means is that Yahweh brought against them the Assyrian Empire, who crushed them and carried most of the people into captivity, scattering them among other regions of the Assyrian Empire. This happened in 722 B.C. Unfortunately, the southern kingdom, Judah, chose a path that wasn't all that different from the northern kingdom. And in spite of reforms by kings like Hezekiah and Josiah, Judah's repeated spiritual adultery brought them under the curses of the covenant as well. They were crushed and led into exile by the Babylonians who reduced Jerusalem to rubble in 586 B.C. But as we closed out the book of Kings, we were reminded that the curses of Deuteronomy weren't final and Yahweh's promise to David still stands. One of his seed will reign over Israel, firmly established in the land promised to Abraham. The kingdom of this promised seed will be an eternal kingdom which will never be conquered. Now we've turned our attention to the prophets who ministered throughout the period of the divided kingdom. We've looked at Jonah, Hosea, Joel, Amos, and Micah. And then we took an extended look at Isaiah, who was ministering at roughly the same time as these other prophets. In Isaiah, we found that in spite of Yahweh's patient care and provision, the people of Israel and Judah are simply going through the motions in their relationship with Yahweh. Their hearts are turned away, and they're pursuing life independent of Him and all He offers them. And this independence manifests itself in three general areas of sin. First, in the corruption and injustice in society as the weak and the needy are oppressed. Secondly, in trusting in agreements with other nations rather than Yahweh to protect them from their enemies. And then third, worshiping the idols of these other nations even while giving lip service to their devotion to Yahweh. And they persisted in this independence throughout the divided kingdom, although Yahweh's discipline of them has become increasingly severe. Isaiah warns them that this persistence is short-sighted. The story is unfolding according to Yahweh's long-established plan. He's in control, and the schemes of men and nations ultimately don't matter because they don't take his plans into account, and his plans determine the course of the story and the destiny of all men. Now, in the short term, these plans involve the continued discipline of his people, the people of Israel. They're going to be humiliated and descended into captivity for their idolatry. But in the long term, these plans culminate in the day of Yahweh when Christ is going to return, pour out God's judgment on all who oppose him, and take his place as the king who will establish his kingdom on the earth. This will be a kingdom of perfect justice, righteousness, and peace, where the weak and vulnerable will be protected and the wicked will be destroyed. As a result of Christ's reign, harmony will be restored among all living creatures, and the Gentile nations will be drawn to him that he might teach them his ways. Those among his people who live in anticipation of his arrival will be renewed and strengthened. He's chosen them as his servant, and unlike their enemies, they have nothing to fear. But all these enemies, all who oppose Yahweh and his people, well, they're going to be destroyed. Now, as we worked our way through the message of Isaiah, we encountered another servant that Yahweh is going to raise up. We learned about this servant through a series of four servant songs. And as we move through these songs, we came to recognize this servant as the seed of David, that is the Messiah or the Christ, the one who will establish the kingdom that we just described here a second ago. 
Now, however, we learn that in the course of his mission, he's going to face such intense opposition that it's going to look like he failed. He's going to be beaten, abused, and humiliated. And as men observe his humiliation, they will assume that his suffering is deserved, that he's under Yahweh's judgment for sin. So he's going to be abhorred and despised. As it turns out, he is under God's judgment, suffering for sin, but it's not for his sin. He's suffering for the sins of Israel and indeed for the sins of the whole world. He willingly presents himself as a guilt offering to atone and make restitution for sin in order to restore Israel to Yahweh. And it's because of this humble obedience that he'll ultimately be elevated above the kings and princes of the earth. And it's because of all the suffering that he willingly endures that he will be exalted as the Messiah of the Christ, this one who will establish the kingdom of perfect justice, righteousness, and peace. Now, Isaiah also reveals a lot about the day of Yahweh and the restoration that this Messiah will bring about. The time that the restoration begins, all the peoples of the earth will be lost in a deep darkness. But with the Messiah's coming, the glory of Yahweh will shine on Judah. Not only will Jerusalem be the location of the Messiah's throne, but also the place of Yahweh's temple. The light of this glory will not only illumine Jerusalem, but it's going to draw kings from the other nations. The Gentile nations will be drawn to him so that he can teach them his ways. In addition to their wealth, these nations will also bring with them the descendants of Israel who are still scattered among the nations. As a result, Jerusalem will be a bustling, vibrant city full of the glory of Yahweh and the wealth of the nations of the world. And because of the restoration that we've talked about, the people of Jerusalem are going to be righteous with a righteousness that exceeds anything they're capable of. This righteousness will clearly be the work of Yahweh. The barrenness that Israel has experienced will be going to be replaced by an unprecedented abundance of offspring through faith. And this abundance is going to extend to the land as both crops and herds will produce an unprecedented bounty. The curse of Genesis 3 is going to be replaced by blessing in Messiah's kingdom. And life will be extended. Infant mortality will go away. And a hundred-year-old man will be considered a young man. People will live long enough to enjoy the full fruits of their labors and to wear out the works of their hands. Now, another significant revelation in Isaiah is that this restoration is going to be accomplished through a new covenant that Yahweh will make with his people. Now, this covenant is not going to be tied to some great deeds that must be done. Yahweh will establish this covenant with them when they adopt a humble and contrite spirit and tremble at his word. When they repent of their independence and self-will in order to learn his thoughts and his ways, which are incomparably superior to theirs and which will ultimately accomplish all that he intends. Now that we've finished Isaiah, we're going to turn our attention to Jeremiah. A couple things I want to mention here. As we move forward, we're not going to go into near as much detail as we have in Isaiah. What I'm trying to do with this podcast is to identify the major developments of the story and show how they move the story forward. The message of Isaiah contains several of those developments, and it seemed to me that the best way to explain those developments was to go into the detail that we did. But now I think we can zoom back out and take the story in bigger pieces. Part of the reason that we can do that is because, as we've already seen with the prophets we've looked at, there are some common themes that permeate all of their messages. By this point, we're familiar enough with those themes that we don't need to continue to rehash them. So we'll try to focus on major contributions that the remaining prophets make to the unfolding story. With that said, let me mention that there are two other, what we would call minor prophets, which probably ministered between Isaiah and Jeremiah. Nahum is one, and his message is focused on Yahweh's message to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. He's announcing Yahweh's coming judgment on them. And you remember, the Assyrian Empire was the ones who took 
the northern kingdom captive, and then they went into decline, and they're going to be replaced by the Babylonians. And so Nahum deals with that transition. Now, the other book is Zephaniah, and Zephaniah is pretty direct as he reiterated the message of Judah's sin in the coming judgment. As I read through Zephaniah, I don't find any new developments, just a familiar message delivered through a different prophet. So this brings us to Jeremiah. Now, before we get into today's material, let me remind you here at the beginning of this episode, we've already covered the historical context in which Jeremiah ministered. Pretty much everything that is talked about in this episode took place during the period we looked at in episode 70. And so if you want to review that history, that episode's 56 minutes long. Again, that's episode 70. Now, back to Jeremiah. He began his ministry in 627 B.C., which would be 22 years before Nebuchadnezzar's first deportation of exiles, which occurred in 605 B.C. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. And he probably ministered, this is Jeremiah, up until about 582 B.C., which would have been four years after Nebuchadnezzar finally destroyed Jerusalem in 586. Now, one of the challenges in reading, working through Jeremiah is that Jeremiah doesn't present his message in a chronological way. And in fact, it's hard to identify any kind of highly developed structure to the order in which he presents things. So as you read through that, uh, through, the, through the book for yourself, just keep that in mind. For my part, I found everything in the first 23 chapters to be pretty familiar. Judah has persisted in her sin, and Yahweh is going to bring judgment on her, sending her into exile. The only difference I note is that at Jeremiah's time, the the judgment is now imminent. In fact, by the time we get to chapter 24, Nebuchadnezzar has already deported some of the people from Jerusalem. And so we'll pick up the story there. We'll begin reading in verse 1. After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the officials of Judah with the craftsmen and the smiths from Jerusalem, and had brought them to Babylon. Okay, so this is the list of all the people. And we want to pause here a second um, and, and consider the timing of the vision that Yahweh is about to show Jeremiah. To do that, it'd be helpful to explain that there are three de- deportation of Jews from Jerusalem to Babylon. The first occurred in 605 B.C., and this is the one which we're going to encounter when we get into Daniel. It's the one where Daniel was deported. Then there was the second one, which occurred in 597 B.C., which is the one that's referred to here. And then there's a third one that's going to occur in 586 B.C., at which time uh, Jerusalem is going to be reduced to rubble. So again, the deportation mentioned here is the second one, and it occurred in 597 B.C., right? So that's where we are in the story. So after that deportation, Jeremiah says, Yahweh showed me, behold, two baskets of figs set before the temple of Yahweh. One basket had very good figs, like first ripe figs, and the other basket had very bad figs, which could not be eaten due to rottenness. Then Yahweh said to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, figs, the good figs, very good, and the bad figs, very bad, which cannot be eaten due to rottenness. Right? So just get the picture here. Yahweh showed Jeremiah two baskets of figs, and they were sitting in front of the temple in Jerusalem. One basket was full of very good pig figs, pigs, figs, and the other basket was full of rotten and edible figs. Now Yahweh is going to explain the significance of this vision to Jeremiah in verse 4. Then the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Thus says Yahweh God of Israel. Like these good figs, so I will regard as good the captives of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans. For I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them again to this land. 
and I will build them up and not overthrow them, and I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know me, for I am Yahweh, and they will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with their whole heart. All right, so I think it's pretty clear, but let's just make sure the basket of good ripe figs represents the captives from Judah that have already been sent to Chaldea, which is another name for Babylon. And so the good figs are those people who have been taken to Babylon in the first deportation of 605 and the second deportation of 597. Yahweh promises that he's going to look on these people with favor, meaning he'll bring them back into the promised land. He'll build them up and not defeat them. He will establish them, not uproot them. And they will enjoy the relationship that Yahweh promised to Abraham's descendants all the way back in Genesis 17:7, that he will be their God and they will be his people. And so now we move into 24.8, where he talks about the bad figs. But like the bad figs, which cannot be eaten due to rottenness, indeed, thus says Yahweh, so will I, will, I will abandon Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his officials, and the remnant of Jerusalem who remain in this land, and the ones who dwell in the land of Egypt. I'll make them a terror and an evil for all the kingdoms of the earth. It's a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse in all places where I will scatter them. I will send the sword, the famine, and the pestilence upon them until they are destroyed from the land which I gave to them and their forefathers. Okay, so in contrast to the basket of good figs, the basket of, basket of rotten and edible figs represents King Zedekiah, all his officials, and the people of Judah, all those who've remained in the land after the first deportations, and all of those who have fled to Egypt to escape captivity in Babylon. Whereas Yahweh had promised to look with favor on those who had been deported, he promises to terrorize these people, and he's going to destroy them with sword, famine, and plagues. And so that's the vision of the basket of of figs, uh, which represents the contrast between those who have been carried into captivity, the good figs, and the bad figs who have stayed in the land uh, or fled to Egypt. Now, as we move into chapter 25, Jeremiah relates another message from Yahweh concerning the people of Judah. This one came in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Right Now, all these references get a little hard to follow, but this is going to be in 605 BC, and which makes it seven years earlier than the message of the two figs that we just looked at in chapter 24. Right, So this is seven years later. I'm sorry, seven years earlier in 605 BC. And as we'll see, the word of Yahweh precedes the first deportation, which is going to take place later that year, right? So here's the message. And so Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, From the thirteenth year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day, these twenty-three years, right? So this has been going on for twenty-three years. The word of Yahweh has come to me, and I have spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. So Jeremiah has been preaching to them, delivering God's message to them for 23 years, and they've been ignoring it. He goes on, verse 4, And Yahweh has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, again and again. But you've not listened nor inclined your ear to hear, saying, Turn now everyone from his evil way and from the evil of your deeds and dwell in the land which Yahweh has given to you and your forefathers forever and ever. And do not go after the other gods and to serve them and to worship them. And do not provoke me to anger with the work of your hands, and I will do you no harm. Right? So this has been the message that's been going on for all these 23 or more years. 
Yet you have not listened to me, declares Yahweh, in order that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Now, as we continue, remember again, this is an earlier message that was given before Nebuchadnezzar came against Jerusalem for the first time. Verse 8, Therefore thus says Yahweh of hosts, Yahweh of the angel armies, Because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, declares Yahweh, and I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against all these nations round about, and I will utterly destroy them and make them a horror and a hissing and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of millstones and the light of the lamp. The whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Right? So to be clear, because of their disobedience, Yahweh is going to send Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and his people against the land of Judah, its inhabitants, and the surrounding nations. Right? So Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and his people against the land of Judah, its inhabitants, and the surrounding nations around Judah. As we said just a minute ago, this will be Nebuchadnezzar's first campaign against Jerusalem, and it's going to result in the first deportation. So we're early in 605 BC. The deportation is going to occur later in this year. And through Nebuchadnezzar, Yahweh is going to completely destroy these lands, obliterating all joy and all gladness. Now, this is something we've heard before, but what we want to note particularly here is that Judah is going to serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. This is new, a new development. And after that's complete, Yahweh is going to then punish the kingdom of Babylon, as Jeremiah goes on to explain in verse 12. Then it will be, when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares Yahweh, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans. I will make it an everlasting desolation. I will bring upon that land all my words, which I have pronounced against it, all that is written in this book, which Jeremiah has prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings will make slaves of them, even them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and according to the work of their hands. So to be clear, after Yahweh has used Babylon to punish Judah and the surrounding nations, he's then going to deal with Babylon for her sin, bringing judgment on her through other nations. Now, at first glance, as we continue into the next verse, it sounds like Jeremiah is going to explain more about Yahweh's punishment of Babylon. But as we get a little further into it, it becomes clear that this explanation looks all the way back to the judgment that begins with Jerusalem, Judah, and the surrounding nations. Now, as we read through this, we shouldn't get too locked in on the judgment of specific nations at a specific time. The point that he's going to make is that all the nations of the earth, beginning with Judah in the near future, will ultimately face Yahweh's wrath and judgment. So listen as he develops the message. For thus Yahweh, the God of Israel, says to me, Take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. So we've heard of this uh, imagery of the wrath, uh, wine of God's wrath before. Verse 16, they will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. Then I took the cup from Yahweh's hand and made all the nations to whom Yahweh sent me drink it. All right, now what follows is a list of these nations. He's going to begin with Judah. So listen as he goes through the list. Jerusalem and the cities of Judah 
and its kings and its princes. These are the ones who are going to drink uh, the, the cup of Yahweh's wrath, the wine of his wrath, right? So Jerusalem and the cities of Judah and its kings and its princes to make them a ruin, a horror, a hissing, and a curse as it is this day. Then Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his servants, his princes, and all his people, and all the foreign people, all the kings of the land of Uz, all the kings of the land of the Philistines, which includes Ashkelon, Gaz, Ekron, and the remnant of Ashdod. Then you have Moab, I'm sorry, Edom, Moab, sons of Ammon, and all the kings of Tyre, all the kings of Sidon, and the kings of the coastlands, which are beyond the sea, Dedan, Tema, and Buzz, and all who cut the corners of their hair, all the kings of Arabia, all the kings of the foreign people who dwell in the desert, and all the kings of Zimri, all the kings of Elam, all the kings of Media, and all the kings of the north, near and far, one with another, and all the kingdoms of the earth, which are upon the face of the ground, and the king of Shishak shall drink after them. Right? Now, this is an extensive list, but in history, Babylon conquered all of these places. Remember that Yahweh has said that he's given all of these into the hand of Babylon as his judgment. So Yahweh gives Jeremiah a message for all these nations. Here's what he's to say to them, beginning in verse 27 of chapter 25. You shall say to them, thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink, be drunk, vomit, fall, and rise no more because of the sword which I will send among you. And so the, 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 the judgment that Yahweh is going to send on them is going to make them incapacitated as if they were drunk. And continuing, he tells uh, uh, Jeremiah in verse 28, And it will be, if they refuse to take the cup from your hand to drink, then you will say to them, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, You shall surely drink. For behold, I am beginning to work calamity in this city, which is called by my name, right? So that's Jerusalem. And shall you be completely free from punishment? You will not be free from punishment. For I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth, declares Yahweh of hosts. And so as we move through this, note the progression and scope given in this last verse. Yahweh is going to pour out the cup of his wrath, beginning in the city called by his name, which is Jerusalem. But ultimately, he's going to send his sword against all the inhabitants of the earth. No one is going to escape. Continuing the message in the following verses, this is verse 30. Therefore, you shall prophesy against them all these words, and you shall say to them, Yahweh will roar from on high and utter his voice from his holy habitation. He will roar mightily against his fold. He will shout like those who tread the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. Again, note that this judgment begins with people. He will roar mightily against his fold. But as he continues, it extends to all the nations of the earth. Verse 31. A clamor has come to the end of the earth because Yahweh has a controversy with the nations. He is entering into judgment with all flesh. As for the wicked, he has given them to the sword, declares Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Behold, evil is going forth from nation to nation, and a great storm is being stirred from the remotest part of the earth. Those slain by Yahweh on that day will be from one end of the earth to the other. They will not be lamented, gathered, or buried. They will be like dung on the face of the ground. So follow this. The judgment that began with Yahweh bringing Nebuchadnezzar against Jerusalem is going to culminate with the judgment that will leave corpses scattered on the ground from one end of the earth to the other. 
So consider what this means. The ultimate scope of this judgment is going to extend all the way into the day of Yahweh, which will commence with the return of Christ and run through the millennium. Jeremiah presents Yahweh's judgment of the nations not as a bunch of isolated events scattered through history, but as a single event which continues throughout history all the way into the day of Yahweh. As Jeremiah continues, Yahweh speaks to the leaders of these nations, and he depicts them as shepherds in this message. He says, Wail, O you shepherds, and cry, and wallow in ashes, you masters of the flock, for the days of your slaughter and your dispersions have come, and you will fall like a choice vessel. Flight will perish from the shepherds and escape from the masters of the flock. Hear the sound of the cry of the shepherds and the wailing of the masters of the flock, for Yahweh is destroying their pasture, and the peaceful folds are made silent because of the fierce anger of Yahweh. He has left his hiding place like the lion, for their land has become a horror because of the fierceness of the oppressing sword and because of his fierce anger. So if the leaders are shepherds, that means the people of their nations are the sheep that they're supposed to care for and protect. And so in this metaphor, Yahweh presents himself as a lion who has sprung from his hiding places and and is in the midst of the flock, just destroying it and filling it with horror. This is the way his judgment is going to come upon these nations when he finally acts. He's been waiting in silence, but he's going to act. And when he does, uh, this is what it's going to be like. Now, that's the end of chapter 25. And as we move into chapter 26, Uh, one thing to point out is that one of the distinct characteristics of Jeremiah's presentation is how much of his own personal experience he includes. And so chapter 26 records one of his experiences. And rather than read through it, I want to summarize it for us and get the essence of it without having to take the time to go through all the details. And so this is going to occur at the beginning of the reign of King Jehoiakim when Yahweh sends Jeremiah to stand in the court of the temple and deliver a message to all the cities of Judah. And so Jehoiakim began his reign in 609 BC, which would be four years before the message of the last chapter and 11 years before the vision of the two baskets of figs. So we're moving back in time. And so Jeremiah is to go to the the court of the temple and deliver this message word for word, leaving nothing out. The essence of the message is that Judah should repent of all their sin in order to halt Yahweh's plans to destroy them. He's going to destroy them. He has plans to. And if they'll repent, then he will change his plans. Now, the people present weren't exactly receptive to Jeremiah's message. When he finished, the priest, the other prophets, and all the people present formed a mob around him and began shouting for his death. Officials from the palace heard about all this, and they came to investigate. The priest and the other prophets argued that Jeremiah must die because he had prophesied against the city of Jerusalem. However, in spite of all these threats, Jeremiah stood behind his message and said these people needed to change their ways. As for himself, he was in their hands. They could do with him as they pleased. They needed to understand that he had been sent by Yahweh. They killed him. They would bring innocent blood on themselves and upon the city. Now, in response to all this, the palace officials and even some of the people who I think had been part of the mob uh, took a position in opposition to any notion of execution. And in the end, a man named Ahikam, who was a member of one of the influential families of Jerusalem, he rose up and protected Jeremiah and kept him from execution. Now, that's a summary of this story. And the thing that stands out to me is just how much opposition the prophets experienced. 
right? A lot of times as I'm reading through and you're, you're, you're reading the prophets delivering their message, whether it's Isaiah or one of the other prophets or even back Elijah and Elisha, uh, we're not, uh, I think sometimes we're a little bit oblivious to how much opposition. It wasn't just that they were ignored. Their message was heard and rejected, and they were actively and often violently opposed. And we're going to see another example of this opposition as we move into the next chapter. So this is Jeremiah chapter 27. In the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from Yahweh saying, okay, now pause again here and get the timing. Verse 1 of the next chapter is going to help us more accurately identify the date of this message, but it's going to be either 594 or 593 B.C., which means that it would have been three or four years after the second deportation and also three or four years after the vision of the two baskets of figs that we began the episode with. And so with that timing in mind, this is the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah. This is when the word comes in verse 2. Thus says Yahweh to me, make for yourself bonds and yokes and put them on your neck and send word to the king of Edom and to the king of Moab, to the king of the sons of Ammon, to the king of Tyre, to the king of Sidon, by the messengers who come to Jerusalem, to Zedekiah, king of Judah. So again, this message isn't just to Jerusalem and Judah. Yahweh tells Jeremiah to send it to some of the surrounding nations as well through the emissaries that who, who come from these nations to King Zedekiah. Verse 4, command them to go to their master, saying, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, Thus you shall say to your masters, I have made the earth, the men and the beasts which are on the face of the earth, by my great power and by my outstretched arm, and I will give it to the one who is pleasing in my sight. Right? So get this picture. Jeremiah begins this message with a fundamental truth. Yahweh's made the earth, all the men, all the beasts which inhabit it, and he's going to give it to whoever he pleases. And so now the implications of that are in the next verse. Now, I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and I have given him also the wild animals of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings will make him their servant. It will be that the nation or the kingdom which will not serve him Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon, and which will not put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, I will punish that nation with the sword, with famine, and with pestilence, declares Yahweh, until I have destroyed it by his hand. Right? So now remember, this is the message that Yahweh tells Jeremiah to send through the emissaries that come to the king of Judah to send back to these kings of these other nations. Nebuchadnezzar is Yahweh's sovereign choice. And any of these nations that refuse to acknowledge Yahweh's choice and submit to Nebuchadnezzar will come under Yahweh's punishment. They'll be destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar's armies, by famine, and by plagues. And so here's what they're to do. Verse 9, But as for you, do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your soothsayers, or your sorcerers who speak to you, saying, You will not serve the king of Babylon, for they prophesy a lie to you in order to remove you far from your land. And I will drive you out, and you will perish. But the nation which will bring its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I will let remain on its land, declares Yahweh. They will till it and dwell in it. So the only way that these nations can continue to exist and to stay on their land is to submit to Yahweh's sovereign choice of Nebuchadnezzar as the current ruler of their land. 
And now Jeremiah is going to turn his attention to Zedekiah, king of Judah. He says in verse 12, I spoke words like all these to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and saying, Bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him and his people and live. Why will you die, you and your people, by the sword, famine, and pestilence, as Yahweh has spoken to that nation which will not serve the king of Babylon? So do not listen to the words of the prophets who speak to you, saying, You will not serve the king of Babylon, for they prophesy a lie to you. I have not sent them, declares Yahweh, but they prophesy falsely in my name, in order that I may drive you out and that you may perish, you and the prophets who prophesy to you. Right? And so anyone who brings a message that conflicts with Jeremiah's is not sent by Yahweh. And just like the other nations, Zedekiah needs to submit to Nebuchadnezzar as Yahweh's choice and live, not be driven off the land and killed. Now, having delivered this message to the king, Jeremiah is going to turn his attention to the priest and to the people. He says in verse 16, Then I spoke to the priest and to all this people, saying, Thus says Yahweh, do not listen to the words of your prophets who prophesy, saying to you, Behold, the vessel of Yahweh's house will now shortly be brought again from Babylon, for they are prophesying a lie to you. Do not listen to them. Serve the king of Babylon and live. Why should this city become a ruin? Right? So pay close attention here. Don't miss this. Jeremiah is warning against prophets who are delivering a message that's favorable to the people of Jerusalem. These prophets are lying. They don't represent Yahweh. God's will for these people, that is the word of Yahweh through Jeremiah, is to serve Nebuchadnezzar, serve the king of Babylon. Obedience to God meant obedience to Nebuchadnezzar. I can't emphasize this enough. For the inhabitants of Jerusalem, faith in Yahweh did not express itself in the belief that he would undo the damage Nebuchadnezzar had already done to the temple. That's what he's talking about, the vessels being brought back. Some of the vessels from the temple had already been carried off to Babylon in the first and second deportation. Right, And so the, the, the faith in Yahweh didn't express itself in the belief that all of this will be, would be brought back from Babylon to the temple. Faith in Yahweh would express itself in submission to Nebuchadnezzar, recognizing him as Yahweh's servant. If they'll do this, they'll live, and Jerusalem won't be, become a deserted ruin. Now, concerning those prophets, verse 18, But if they are prophets, and if the word of Yahweh is with them, let them now entreat Yahweh of hosts that the vessels which are left in the house of Yahweh, in the house of the king of Judah, and in Jerusalem may not go to Babylon. The ones that haven't been taken yet, let them entreat Yahweh that they'll stay here. Verse 19, for thus says Yahweh of hosts concerning the pillars, concerning the sea, concerning the stands, and concerning the rest of the vessels that are left in the city. Right. This is all the furnishings that haven't been taken, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, did not take, when he carried into exile Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from Jerusalem to Babylon, and all the nobles of Judah and Jerusalem, right? So in these previous deportations, these were things were not taken. Verse 21, yes, thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that are left in the house of Yahweh and in the house of the king of Judah and in Jerusalem. They will be carried to Babylon and they will be there until the day I visit them, declares Yahweh. Then I will bring them back and restore them to this place. And so Yahweh is, in fact, going to restore the temple and the remnant to Jerusalem, but not now. Now Yahweh has determined that the rest of the furnishings of the temple are going to go to Babylon. And this is completely opposite of what these false prophets are saying. 
As we move into chapter 28, we encounter one of those prophets who opposed Jeremiah and his message. And so we're going to hear specifically what he's saying in the opposition uh, that he presents to Jeremiah. This is in verse 1 of chapter 28. Now in the same year, in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fourth year, in the fifth month. And so this, again, is where we get 594, 593 B.C., right? This is the same time as the previous chapter. Um, and so Hanani, the son of Azur, the prophet, who was from Gibeon, spoke to me in the house of Yahweh in the presence of the priest and all the people. Okay, so don't miss this. This prophet, Hananiah, directly challenges Jeremiah in the temple sometime after Jeremiah had delivered the message that we just looked at, which, of course, was the message warning everyone not to listen to prophets like Hananiah. So Jeremiah has delivered that message, and now Hananiah is challenging Jeremiah in the same place there in the temple that he delivered the first message. And here's what Hananiah has to say. Verse 2. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, I've broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I'm going to bring back to this place all the vessels of Yahweh's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. I'm also going to bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles of Judah who went to Babylon, declares Yahweh, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon." So according to Hananiah, not only will Yahweh bring uh, back the temple furnishings, he's going to also bring back all the exiles, and this is all within the next two years. Again, remember, Jeremiah has already said that the exile is going to last 70 years. So here's how Jeremiah responds in verse 5. Then the prophet Jeremiah spoke to the prophet Hananiah in the presence of the priest and in the presence of all the people who were standing in the house of Yahweh. The prophet Jeremiah said, Amen. May Yahweh do so. May Yahweh confirm your words, which you have prophesied, to bring back the vessels of Yahweh's house and all the exiles from Babylon to this place. Right? So this first part of Jeremiah's response is really quite affirming. In effect, he's saying, absolutely, make it so. Nothing I would like more. But that's not the end of his reply. He continues in verse 7. Yet hear now this word which I'm about to speak in your hearing and in the hearing of all the people. The prophets who were before me and before you from ancient times prophesied against many lands and against great kingdoms, of war and of calamity and of pestilence. The prophet who prophesies of peace when the word of the prophet comes to pass, then that prophet will be known as the one Yahweh has truly sent. So in effect, Jeremiah is saying, well, time will tell which one of us is truly a prophet sent by Yahweh. I'd really like for this to be a message of peace. But the message of war has been historically what the prophets have brought. Time will tell. Hananiah responds in the next verse. Then Hananiah the prophet took the yoke from the neck of Jeremiah the prophet and broke it. Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people, saying, Thus says Yahweh, Even so will I break within two full years the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all the nations. Then the prophet Jeremiah went his way. And so this yoke that uh, Hananiah broke is the yoke that Yahweh told Jeremiah to make and put on back at the beginning of chapter 27. So Hananiah takes the yoke off of Jeremiah, breaks it as a sign of his message, which was presented as the word of Yahweh, that Nebuchadnezzar's control would be broken within two years. And again, Jeremiah preemptively warned against paying attention to this very message all the way back in chapter 27. So this is already something that Jeremiah is warned about. So now Jeremiah receives another word from Yahweh, verse 20, uh, chapter 28, verse 12. 
The word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah after Hananiah the prophet had broken the yoke from off the neck of the prophet Jeremiah, saying, Go and speak to Hananiah, saying, Thus says Yahweh, You have broken yokes of wood, but you have made instead of them yokes of iron. For thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, I've put a yoke of iron on the neck of all these nations, that they may serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they will serve him. And I've also given him the beast of the field. Then Jeremiah the prophet said to Hananiah the prophet, Listen now, Hananiah, Yahweh has not sent you. You've made this people trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, Behold, I am about to remove you from the face of the earth. This year you're going to die because you have counseled rebellion against Yahweh. So Hananiah the prophet died in the same year in the seventh month. All right, so let's pause to consider what Hananiah's death accomplished. There's three things. First, it served as Yahweh's judgment against him for counseling rebellion against Yahweh, right? So it was Yahweh's judgment. Second, it removed Hananiah from Jerusalem so that he's no longer influencing the people to believe in a lie. took him out of the way. And third, since Jeremiah prophesied his death within that same year, it substantiated Jeremiah's claim that he was the true prophet of Yahweh and that his message should be heeded, right? And so with this, we're going to move into the last chapter that we want to look at in this episode. This is chapter 29. And this chapter is another new message, but it's not directed to the people of Judah. It's a letter that Jeremiah sends to the exiles who are already in Babylon. He has a word of Yahweh from Yahweh specifically for them. And so he says in verse uh, chapter 29, verse 1, Now these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile, the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the court officials, the princes of Judah, and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths, had departed from Jerusalem. This letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, okay, now there's a lot of names here and this gets all jumbled up. So let me clarify this last verse. Jeremiah sent this letter with a man named Elasa, who was part of the delegation sent by the king of Judah to King Nebuchadnezzar. There's actually him. There was the king of Elasa and Gemariah, two men who were part of this delegation, right? And so they're sent to King Nebuchadnezzar. And so he sends a letter with them for the exiles who are living in Babylon. Verse 4, here's what it says. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, and plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to Yahweh on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. Right. So the essence of this message is to put down roots and settle in. You're going to be there a while. And in this context, they're to seek what the NASB translates as welfare, the welfare of Babylon. Now, when we look at this, the Hebrew word is shalom. And of course, this is very often translated peace. And the point is that the exiles from Judah 
are to seek the peace or the well-being of Babylon because their well-being is tied to the well-being of Babylon, right? So this is unexpected, but it is Yahweh's command to them. And he continues, verse 8, For thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your definers deceive you, and do not listen to the dreamers uh, dreams which they dream. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares Yahweh. So just as there were false prophets in Jerusalem, there are false prophets among the exiles who are proclaiming a message that's simpler to what was being promoted by the false prophets in Jerusalem. Yahweh has not sent any of these prophets, and so they're to be rejected. And he continues presenting Yahweh's true message in verse 10. For thus says Yahweh, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. And so again, same message that we heard in Jerusalem, Yahweh's going to bring them back, but it's going to be 70 years. His promises are reliable, but they're going to be fulfilled in his time. And so he explains in verse 11, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares Yahweh, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Now, this verse is often quoted as if it's a promise to an individual believer today. It's not. It's Yahweh's promise to the exiles dwelling in Babylon. It's a reminder that although they had been sent off to a far-off land, Yahweh wasn't done with them. His plans for them did not end in calamity. He has a future in store for them beyond that. His plans and his plans involved their welfare. There's that word again, shalom. His plans for them that they would have a future, to have a hope and to know peace. Verse 12. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares Yahweh, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I've driven you, declares Yahweh, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. Now, this is the restoration that we learned about in Isaiah. Yahweh had a future plan for the people of Judah in which they would finally turn their hearts toward him and seek him with every fiber of their being. And at that point, he would regather them from among the nations where they'd been scattered. Now, pay careful attention here. Remember earlier how the promised judgment progressed from the near future judgment of Jerusalem all the way through the judgment that would be associated with the day of Yahweh? Well, there's a similar progression in the promised restoration of the remnant. After 70 years, there would be a remnant that returned from Babylon, just as he promised in verse 10. But that return doesn't fit the description that we just read in verses 12 through 14. The return after 70 years only involved Jews living in Babylon, not those who were scattered all over the nations. And not even all of the people who were in Babylon, all the Jews in Babylon, returned at that time. Clearly, they didn't seek him with all their heart. The complete regathering promised in these latter verses won't occur until the restoration associated with the day of Yahweh. In that day, all of their descendants who have been scattered among the nations will seek after him with all their hearts and will be regathered. And so this regathering that, as you read it in Jeremiah, seems to be a single regathering, extends from what began at the end of the 70 years captivity and extends all the way up through events that are still future to us. And yet it's presented as a single regathering, right? And so Yahweh is looking at this from a very high perspective. 
Now, one thing to mention here is just from our perspective at our point in the story, just because these promises have not yet been fulfilled, even in our day, doesn't mean the promises of Yahweh have failed. It just means that the story's not over, right? We're still waiting for all of these things to be fulfilled and for uh, the story to play out, right? So uh, having revealed the future that Yahweh has planned for his people as we continue, he's going to turn his attention to the reception that they've given to the false prophets who are among them. This is in uh, verse 15. Because you have said Yahweh has raised up prophets for us in Babylon. In other words, they've believed the false prophets. They see them as uh, sent by Yahweh. Because you've believed the false prophets among Babylon or from Yahweh, I've got a message for you. Verse 16, For thus says Yahweh concerning the king who sits on the throne of David and concerning all the people who dwell in the city, your brothers who did not go into exile. All right. Now, the, the, the progression of this uh, message is a bit hard to follow, but remember that the message of the false prophets has been that in the near future, Yahweh is going to return all the exiles back to Judah. And the implication is that he would restore Judah to its former status as an independent sovereign nation. And so against that background, Yahweh has a message for the exiles concerning the king who sits in Jerusalem that they want to return to and all the people who remain there with him, right? So this ideal thing that they want to go to, this is the message regarding them. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Behold, I am sending upon them the sword, famine, and pestilence, and I will make them like split open figs that cannot be eaten due to rottenness. I will pursue them. So now we've got a reference back to the rotten figs that we looked at in chapter 24. I will pursue them with the sword, with famine, and with pestilence, and I will make them a terror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a curse and a horror and a hissing and a reproach among all the nations where I have driven them. Because they've not listened to my words, declares Yahweh, which I sent to them again and again by my servants, the prophets. But you did not listen, declares Yahweh. And so he delivers the same message to them that he presented to the people who were still in Jerusalem, because those people had refused to respond to Yahweh's warnings that he'd repeatedly sent to his prophets. He's going to terrify them and destroy them with swords and famine and plagues. And the unspoken implication of all of this is that in the near term, there's going to be nothing for the exiles to return to, right? They've got prophets that are saying, well, within two years, you're going to go back. And he's going, in the near term, there's not going to be anything to go back to. The Judah that they know is about to be annihilated. And the implications of this for the exiles is given in the next verse, verse 20. You, therefore, hear the word of Yahweh, all you exiles, whom I have sent away from Jerusalem to Babylon. In other words, obey the instructions that I gave you at the beginning of this letter. Put down roots and settle in. Seek the peace of Babylon, because the peace you will experience is tied to the peace of Babylon. Settle in and wait for the 70 years to be completed. Maybe a simpler way to explain it is when he says, hear the word of Yahweh, he's saying, pay attention to what I've already told you back at the beginning of the letter. Right, And so this letter is going to end with a message concerning two of the false prophets. And so he's going to address this, this message to two guys specifically here among the, the exiles in verse 21. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning Ahab, the son of Coliah, and concerning Zedekiah, the son of Maasiah, who are prophesying to you falsely in my name. 
again, when we have a lot of names like this, it's hard to keep track of sometimes what's being said. So these two men are claiming to be Yahweh's prophets, and they're promising that he will send them back to Jerusalem before long, right? That's the effect of their message. Here's what you need to know about these guys. Behold, I will deliver them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he will slay them before your eyes. So these guys that you're trusting in that are telling you that I'm going to send you back, that's not what's going to happen. They're going to be delivered into the hands of of Nebuchadnezzar, and he's going to kill them, right? Now, this sounds a little bit like what happened to the false prophet Hanani back in Jerusalem that we talked about a few minutes ago. They're going to die. But with these two, we get more details about their death. Verse 22, because of them, a curse will be used by all the exiles from Judah who are in Babylon, saying, May Yahweh make you like Zedekiah and like Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire. Remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace? Well, this is that place, right? That's what's going to happen to these guys, except, of course, Yahweh's not going to deliver them. They're going to be roasted alive because, verse 23, they have acted foolishly in Israel and have committed adultery with their neighbor's wives and have spoken words in my name falsely, which I did not command them. And I am he who knows and witnesses, declares Yahweh. Right? So I know what they're doing. They're false prophets and they've got other sins and I'm going to expose them and I'm going to punish them. Now, the rest of the chapter contains a response to letters sent by one of the exiles back to Jerusalem, right? And so uh, understand that as we move into these last few verses. And again, what we're seeing here is the pushback against uh, Jeremiah's message. And so to Shemaiah, the Nehalamite, you shall speak saying, thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, because you have sent letters in your own name, to all the people who are in Jerusalem, and to Zephaniah the son of Messiah, the priest, and to all the priests, saying, Yahweh has made you priest instead of Jehoiada the priest to be the overseer in the house of Yahweh over every madman who prophesies to put him in the stocks and in the iron collar. Now then, why have you not rebuked Jeremiah of Anathoth, who prophesies to you? For he is sent to us in Babylon, saying, The exile will be long, build houses and live in them, and plant gardens and eat their produce. So again, there's kind of a lot that's going on here. To clarify, Shemaiah, uh, Shemaiah has sent letters by his own authority to all the people in Jerusalem and to Zephaniah and the other priests. Now, given the way that he speaks, he must have been a man who was uh, accustomed to some influence and expected his instructions to be obeyed. And he tells Zephaniah that Yahweh wants him to replace Jehoiada and take charge of the temple. Jehoiada was the one who was in charge of the temple, and Shemaiah is telling Zephaniah that Yahweh wants him to replace Jehoiada. And he's doing this in response to Jeremiah's message to this in this letter to the exiles uh, where he tells them to settle in in Babylon and plan to be there for a while. Shemaiah is is responding to that, and he instructs Zephaniah to rebuke Jeremiah and to put him in stocks and an iron collar. He wants to shut Jeremiah up, right? And so continuing in verse 29, uh, we read that Zephaniah the priest read this letter to Jeremiah the prophet. And so Zephaniah reads the letter from uh, Shemaiah to Jeremiah. Got that? And of course, this letter tells uh, Zephaniah to put Jeremiah in chains because Shemaiah doesn't like what he's saying. 
And so, verse 30, Then came the word of Yahweh to Jeremiah, saying, Send to all the exiles, saying, Thus says Yahweh concerning Shemaiah the Nehelamite, Because Shemaiah has prophesied to you, although I did not send him, and has made you trust in a lie, therefore thus says Yahweh, Behold, I am about to punish Shemaiah the Nehelamite, and his descendants he will not have anyone living among this people, and he will not see the good that I am about to do to my people, declares Yahweh, because he has preached rebellion against Yahweh. So, once again, we're told that the false prophet who opposes the message of Yahweh is going to die. Now, we don't have any record of that explicitly, but the implication is because Yahweh has said it's going to happen, it's going to happen, right? So this brings us to the end of the chapter and everything that we want to consider in today's episode. And this, I, I think, for me, is a, is, a, is a rich episode just because of some of the things that develop here. You've got the 70 years, and that's a big contribution, uh, that there's going to be 70 years specifically of, of exile, and then some of the perspectives. And so as we move into the making sense of life, um, I think there's three things that we would do well to orient to. And the first one is just presented very straightforwardly in, in the passage. Uh, and that is that Yahweh has made the earth and all the men and the beasts that inhabit it belongs to him. He will give it to whomever he pleases. It's his world and he alone decides how it operates. And if there's anything that we need to orient to, a reality that we need to orient to, it is that. He did not wind it up and set it in motion and leave it. He doesn't just check in from time to time. It is his earth by virtue of the fact that he created it. He'll give it to whoever he pleases. He decides how it operates, and we need to come to grips with that. And this leads me to the second reality that I think we need to orient to, and that is that Yahweh operates on a scale that is difficult for us to comprehend. And we've seen it in in several places. There's uh, three that I want to point out to us. And the first is the 70 years of captivity announced by Jeremiah. Now, we covered this back in episode 71 when we were going through the historical account. And in 2 Chronicles 36, 20, and 21, we learned that the captivity was 70 years long because the people of Israel had failed to keep the Sabbath years, which were supposed to occur every seven years. Which means that if they owed 70 years, they had failed to keep the Sabbath year for 490 years. Now, we don't know whether those Sabbath years were consecutive that they had missed or whether they're scattered across Israel's history where they didn't do very good for a long period and then they throw a few in. We don't know. It doesn't say. But either way, God sent his people into captivity for 70 years because of the disobedience of multiple generations of Israelites. And it's hard for us to understand how this works and why he would do this. Why does an Israelite in 605 B.C. have to endure 70 years of captivity because of Sabbath years that were skipped two or three centuries before they were born? And why did all those earlier generations who skipped the Sabbath years not have to endure any time in exile? And of course, that's the whole point. Yahweh is operating on a scale that we don't comprehend, right? We see a similar thing in the scale of both the judgments that Yahweh is going to bring on the nations and the return from the exile. The scope of the judgments announced spans multiple generations, and yet Yahweh speaks of them as a unified action. He's going to judge all the nations of the earth, and it begins with the judging of Jerusalem and the surrounding nations by the Babylonians. 
But as the description continues, it's clear the judgment being described extended days beyond our own. That's a span of more than 2,600 years. And the same thing is true as he speaks of the return from the exile. The promise began to be fulfilled at the end of the 70 years of exile. But some of the elements of the description still haven't been fulfilled more than 2,500 years later. Right, And so what Yahweh describes in Jeremiah as the restoration from the exile looks to us like a whole bunch of separate events, or multiple events maybe, uh, scattered over the course of history. For God, it's a single uh, event. It's a restoration. And so the point of this is that Yahweh acts in ways and in a scope that is beyond our comprehension. Now, unfortunately, we often respond by dismissing his ways as incomprehensible. We don't understand them, and so we ignore them. But the proper response is to acknowledge our own very finite and limited abilities and humble ourselves before him in unqualified submission. We don't know what he's doing, and so we would do well to simply do what it is that he tells us to do. And this brings me to the third reality that we need to orient to. And it's that in this submission that his people enjoy his provision and his protection. For the people of Jeremiah's day, this had surprising implications. Those that fought to preserve their nation as it had existed, they were going to be terrorized and ultimately slaughtered. That was their future. The only place that they could enjoy peace and well-being was in the capital city of their enemy. So it was in their best interest to submit to the king and seek the well-being of the city of Babylon. Yahweh had placed them under Nebuchadnezzar's authority, and they expressed their submission to Yahweh in their submission to Nebuchadnezzar. Right Now, for us at our play in the story, I think all three of these realities still apply. Yahweh has made the earth and all the men and the beasts which inhabit it. Uh, he's made all of that. This is his world and he alone decides how it operates, right? He's still actively involved, and we need to orient to that, right? He hasn't turned it loose, and nothing's operating outside of his control. He's the creator, and by virtue of that, he controls everything. And then the second thing is still true, that God is operating far beyond our comprehension. He's operating on a scale and a timing that doesn't begin to fit in our frame of reference. And so this realization should humble us. And this humility should lead us to unqualified submission, which is what Jesus calls the disciples to. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. As we get into the epistles, uh, um, die daily, right? Present your bodies a living sacrifice. Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, right? And so there's this unqualified submission. We obey because he says so, not because we understand, and it's in this submission that we can enjoy his provision and protection. Now, we could talk a lot about what that submission is going to look like, how it's going to manifest itself uh, as they submitted themselves to Yahweh, they submitted to Nebuchadnezzar. And I think there's some parallels, but I think that's also a much more involved conversation uh, that we have time for today. And so for me, I, I think the, the, the point, the takeaway from this is really on this second, is that God is operating far beyond our comprehension. And so we should respond in, humili in humility, and this humility should lead us to unqualified submission. We obey because he says so, not because we understand. Hope this is helpful. Hope you're help it's, it's helping you make sense of your life. 
And so always considered a privilege to get to share this with you. This is a longer episode, but we've covered 29 of the 52 chapters of uh, Jeremiah. And so next episode, we're going to be looking at the new covenant. Jeremiah gives a, a good bit of detail about that. We were introduced to it in Isaiah, but Jeremiah gives us more detail. We'll look at that in the next episode. Uh, for any comments or questions you've got, garth at truequest.us is a dedicated email. Uh, appreciate those of you who have rated the podcast and uh, given a review. Um, thank you for that. And uh, just mention here at the end, this podcast is a ministry of TrueQuest Outfitter Ministries. If you're finding value in what we're doing here and want to support it, you can do so at TrueQuest.us. There's a donate button on every page. Until next time, I pray God's blessings are upon you. Mm-hmm.